Welcome everyone to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I am watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies. I am your host, this self-indulgent, narcissistic, solipsistic, pathetic Steve Guntley. My guest today is a writer, he's an actor, he's a podcaster, he's a comedian, and weirdly he told me just before the recording that he's renouncing fish. It was crazy, like he used to be so into fish, and then all of a sudden he's just like, fuck fish. Uh, it's Jesse Whitehead. Hey, Jesse. Just done with fish is all. You're just done. You're just done. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. I'm so glad to have you here. I'm so glad to be here. I really enjoy listening to your show. I've enjoyed the the discussions and the analysis. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I'm very excited because today we're going to be talking about the movie Adaptation. This was uh, directed by Spike Jones, released December 6, 2002, and it stars Nicolas Cage, Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper, Tilda Swinton, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Brian Cox, Ron Livingston, and a little appearance from a baby Judy Greer, which I always love to see. Uh, I have not revisited this movie since probably about 2004, 2005. Uh, I remember seeing it and loving it, and I just haven't really gone back to it. So it was a absolute delight going back to this movie. Uh, this is one of the great meta narrative experiments in film history. Uh, it's astounding that it works. It's so much fun, and it's such a brain teaser. It's such like a puzzle box of a movie, but it's just it's a delight just trying to keep up with it. And uh, I, I had an absolute blast watching it. It's definitely the kind of movie where every time you watch it, you find another layer. You're never yes. done watching this movie. Exactly. You got to love that. You're getting so much bang for your buck here. So uh, when I was putting out calls for, for signups for guests and everything, you were one of the first ones to sign up and you signed up for this movie. So why did you want to talk about adaptation? Well, mostly I was just eager to sign up for any episode because I love the premise of this show. I'm a huge fan of Roger Ebert. When I was growing up, he basically taught me how to watch movies. Yeah. So, you know, outside of my parents, he is the person kind of most directly responsible for the, the person I grew up to be. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he means the world to me. And uh, I wanted to just get in on anything, but I, I read, I went through the great movies list and picked out some favorites. And Adaptation is definitely uh, at the top of, of my favorites because, amongst other things, much like I'm a huge Ebert fan, I'm a huge Charlie Kaufman fan. Even before yes. I knew who he was, I was a fan of TV shows that he was writing for, like The Dana Carvey Show and Ned and Stacy. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. And the, then, of course, the, Bean John Malkovich came out. Yeah. And you don't forget the name after that. <laughs> oh, God, no, no. And I, it's so weird that this movie is like his second film as a screenwriter. And yet it's just so inexorably tied with him and his persona. Like we have uh, being John Malkovich established who his vo what his voice was so strongly that we can have him being played as a character and fully understand who Charlie Kaufman is and why he's an important figure. I think that's pretty astounding. Just to uh, pedal back for one second, I think this was actually his third uh, screenplay to be produced. <gasps> You're right. He, he I... had one with... Um... Uh, who's the other guy he collaborates with? Uh, I forget oh, his name. Uh, Michelle Gondry. You're thinking yes, of Human Gondry. Nature. Human yes, Nature. Human Nature, which is... Uh, I've never seen that one. It's okay. Yeah. You know, I, I, there's, there's some interesting stuff going on there, but it's not quite top-tier Kaufman like so many of his other things. I remember that one kind of like slipping through the cracks. Like, you know, this adaptation was sold like very aggressively through a studio as like from the writer of being John Malkovich and then Human Nature just kind of like 
came out in between these movies and no one really paid attention. Well, I, I feel like the reception to Human Nature in its early release was pretty lukewarm, so the studios didn't bother pursuing it any further. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, meta-narrative movies like this can be exhausting. Uh, there's a quote from an episode of Community that I always think of uh, when Abed is making his movie where he's Jesus but making his own movie, and Shirley says, I'm reacting the way the world does to movies about making movies about making movies. I mean, come on, Charlie Kaufman. Some of us have work in the morning. Damn. <laughs> yes. Like, such a good line and so amazing. And I, But I think the amazing thing uh, upon revisiting this movie uh, and and even with that quote in mind is that this movie does not feel like a flex. There's a sincerity to this movie that's kind of going through the entire thing and that it, it doesn't feel like, you know, Kaufman smelling his own farts. It feels like he, it's not him flexing about how much of a genius he is. And most of the time, it's the opposite. The only scenes you see where anyone refers to this script as genius or brilliant are literally his masturbatory fantasies. So, like, he is not, he's not setting himself up as this genius, you know? No, and if anything, he's, he, uh, Charlie Kaufman, the writer of Adaptation, is really into humiliating Charlie Kaufman, the character of Adaptation, <laughs> uh, and, and, and humbling him a lot. Like, a big thing is he goes to the Robert McKee story seminar, and it's helpful for him, like, not just mm -hmm. for the screenplay, but for his own goddamn life. And so, I love that he's trying to resist it being helpful, too. The narrative in his head becomes so loud that it's like talking over anything McKee is saying. Like, So he's like refusing to let himself learn anything, and he learns it in spite of himself. Yes, I thought that was an interesting, again, just sort of humbling coming from a screenwriter who was so quickly labeled this you know, innovative genius. It's nice to see him trying not to buy into his own hype. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just... It's a fascinating film, and it's so much fun to keep up with. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about some of our key players here. Let's start with Spike Jones because, uh, man, what a cool filmmaker Spike Jones is. He's one of those guys who doesn't do a lot of movies, but anytime he does one, it's reason to like perk up and pay attention because they've all been bangers. Uh, so Spike Jones, he started as a music video director, and then he quickly established himself as one of the most daring and original and brilliant filmmakers of his generation and he's also one of the rare film directors who's actually a pretty good actor in his own right, too. You know, like 1999 was a big year for him. He directed Being John Malkovich and also was fourth billed in the movie Three Kings. I remember really that good. blowing my mind when Three Kings came out that Spike Jones was getting billing like in the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's like and he's quite good in that movie. You know, he's since popped up in like Wolf of Wall Street and like a bunch of other things. And he's he's quite funny. I always enjoy uh, when he puts on the old man makeup for jackass shenanigans. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. So he was born Adam Spiegel in 1969, uh, and he got that nickname from a skate shop owner who uh, uh, thought he looked like Spike Jones, the, the parody musician from the 50s. Oh, from the is, Goon Show. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, and, that's, and that just stuck. Whatever reason he just went with, he just changed the spelling. Uh, but he got his start photographing BMX riders and skateboarders and producing, like, skate videos in the 80s and early 90s. And his work started getting picked up in, like, publications, which led to Jones eventually founding his own skate magazine called Dirt, which was uh, which also produced, like, these really high-impact skate videos. You know, if you were into skateboarding or snowboarding culture at any point in your life, these things were ubiquitous, but they were always so exciting to find it's just oh look at that sick ollie that dude did off that rail clearly i don't know what i'm talking about but um 
1992, uh, Spike Jones directed his first music video for Sonic Youth, which he actually co-directed with Tamara Davis, who we know now as the director of Billy Madison and Half-Baked. Uh, and that led to him becoming getting more work in the music video industry at probably the time when the music video industry was kind of the most exciting form of film expression. It was enormous. Like feature directors were doing music videos. They were getting budgets of like one million dollars. Yeah, for was, these five minute videos. The nineties was a crazy time. <laughs> there was uh, I miss these days. And I my first exposure to Spike Jones was with his third ever music video, which was Weezer's Buddy Holly where he put Weezer, cast Weezer as the band in the Happy Days Cafe with all the original... It's, it's a really ingenious little video uh, and a whole lot of fun if you haven't seen it. And then he, he went on to direct like what I would consider kind of the pantheon of the great music videos of the 90s. We have Beastie Boys' Sabotage. We have Fatboy Slim's Weapon of Choice. I was we about to say, Boy wasn't Slim's Weapon crazier. of Choice one of his? Yeah, with Christopher Walken dancing in the hotel. We have Bjork's It's Oh So Quiet. We have... I'm forgetting the artist now, but the one with like, it's a man on fire. It's like entirely just a slow motion. Like the entire video was shot in like five seconds and he slowed it down to fill five minutes. I, I remember the video. I don't remember the artist. I'm blanking on that too. I feel bad about that. But yeah, as I said, so he made his feature film debut with being John Malkovich in 1999 with a screenplay by Charlie Kaufman. Uh, which Ebert named the best movie of that year. Uh, he never actually got around to putting a great essay, a great movie's essay out about being John Malkovich, but I think it's it would have been a matter of time, I think. Probably. Uh, so in 2000, Jones co-created the viral sensation Jackass for MTV, which, like, I, I, I didn't realize until kind of recently, uh, the Jackass only has, like, maybe 30 episodes. Like, there really aren't that many episodes of Jackass. But it was such a huge like cultural moment, and they played the MTV for like the first for like two years after that just became the Jackass Channel. Oh yeah, no MTV was really good at getting a lot of mileage out of a very little content. And then those movies came out, and they are still some of the biggest box office draws of all time. Oh yeah, like, I, I the, saw every one of those movies. And they're great. They're great. But they all made they they were made for like a thousand dollars each, and they made like a hundred and fifty million each, and it's. They're insane and they're audacious. And uh, Jackass is, I think, with a little bit of time and distance, we're going to call it one of the great like postmodern comedies of all time. I believe Roger uh, Ebert gave Jackass a good review. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. So Adaptation was only his second film. Uh, he followed that up in 2008 with the very strange Where the Wild Things Are adaptation, mm. which is uh, uh, a movie I want to love. It's a movie I respect. A lot. I don't know if I love it, but I, I it's a it's a beautiful watch. And oh, uh, I, I, I adore it. I think it's a masterpiece. I will say it has the greatest trailer ever made. Uh, yes. It, yeah, it's, it's 100 percent the greatest film trailer ever made. And maybe I was just judging it too harshly by that standard. I don't know, but I need to I need to go back and rewatch that one. I just, uh, I just love oh, yeah. the whole thing with um, the Jim Henson puppet suits with the digital faces. I thought was such a great visual that I had not seen before. I love that. I, I I think that's the way CGI should be done. That's that's how you stay out of the uncanny valley and how you give actors something to act against, you know, instead of a tennis ball on a stick. I think you need to have these physical characters and then just use CG to bring the details to life, you know? Like I've I've always said, yeah, like have puppets and animatronics with digital enhancements. It looks yeah. better. And that's what Jones did with that movie. And that's what Guillermo del Toro did with like Pan's Labyrinth. And like it, it, it just, it works so much better. 
so in 2013, Jones won an Oscar for his very first original screenplay for Her, which he also directed. Uh, a, a really lovely movie with uh, Joaquin Phoenix as a man who falls in love with an operating system. Uh, just, a, just a lovely movie. Uh, this is his last directorial effort to date. Uh, in the meantime, I did not realize this. Jones has been the creative director for Vice Media for the last several years. Oh, I hadn't uh, heard that. Yeah, so he's he's kind of like the reason that that site has been exploding in this last decade a little bit, you know, for for better or worse. I've I've got my conflicting feelings about Vice Media, but uh, as do I. Yeah, yeah, but but he, you know they do some interesting stuff there. Um, so that's Spike Jones, cool dude, interesting guy. Uh, I, I'm excited to see whatever movie he comes up with. But the other half of this dyad that we really need to talk about, uh, because he's inexorably tied to this movie and we cannot escape it, is Charlie Kaufman. Uh, he is He's one of the most ingenious screenwriters uh, and now directors in the industry. Uh, he's universally acclaimed, completely brilliant. Uh, he was born in 1958 in New York, went to NYU to learn screenwriting, but spent several years after that working for a newspaper in Minnesota, he moved to the L.A. in the early 90s to pursue his writing career full time and did a lot of like TV comedy work. So he was a staff writer on the Chris Elliott show Get a Life in the early 90s. Another show that I loved growing up. A banger, a banger. My parents made me turn that one off because I, I think I was like eight or nine when that show came out. And it was so foul and so mean that they always made me turn it off. But I thought it was hysterical. Well, I, I think I was younger than that when it was on. And my parents let me watch that because they loved how <laughs> surreal it was. And that shows how I discovered R.E.M. Oh, really? Oh, that, that I think me too, actually, because they did the theme song, right? Yeah, Stan. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Oh, there's a fly in here. Um, so he followed up that stint on Get a Life with a, uh, uh, a writing gig on the short-lived sketch comedy show The Edge which I've never seen, but I know of it because it is the first film roles for Jennifer Aniston, for Wayne Knight, for Jill Talley, for Tom Kenny, for Julie Brown. Like a lot of people came out of this very, very small sketch comedy show from the early 90s. Uh, and then, uh, and, and oh yeah, it was also being uh, run by future Simpsons showrunner David Merkin. So like, how have a lot I of people, never heard of this show before? <laughs> because it's like gone. Like you can't find it anywhere. I think there might have been a DVD release a couple years ago, but I don't know. Like, it I'm, sounds I'm not like lost media to me. Yeah, and I, I honestly don't know if it's worth tracking down, other than seeing like very young Jennifer Aniston, like you know, pre Leprechaun, like yeah, <laughs> her signature role, as we all know, <laughs> beloved American classic Leprechaun. Uh, he just so wants his pot of gold, Steve. That's all he wants. If he has to pogo stick through your stomach to get it, he will do it. Okay, hot take. Leprechaun yeah. 2 is an actual kind of good movie. <laughs> I have seen every Leprechaun movie, and my favorite one is Leprechaun in the Hood. I have okay. to say, Le Leprechaun <laughs> in the Hood, because it's ridiculous. It has some Bugs Bunny nonsense, and uh, Leprechaun just smokes weed the entire movie. <laughs> so that's my feelings on Leprechaun, too. Like, it knows what it is, and it's made by a professional who knows how to get the most out of that. The same guy who made Idle Hands. Oh, my God, that is the same guy. Oh, yeah. Crap. Uh, so after the edge was canceled, uh, he uh, Charlie Kaufman joined the staff room or the writers' room of the Dana Carvey Show, which has one of the most legendary writers' rooms of all time. So also in there was uh, Louis C.K. We'll get him out of the way. Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Robert Smigel, Greg Daniels, uh, and of course Charlie Kaufman. Like. 
for for a show that lasted two seasons, which is very funny. I remember watching this show when it was I, on. Two seasons? I think it was like six episodes. Oh, was it only that long? Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. There's yeah. a really great documentary on Hulu called uh, Too Funny to Fail, all about the Dana Carvey show. Oh, I need to check that out. I've, I remember hearing about that. I never watched it, but it is that that's an insane writer's room right there. Uh, and then you mentioned also the cult comedy Ned and Stacy, which ran for a very short time on Fox. And that's another one I've never seen. That is that still worth checking out? Yes, if you can find episodes, I have managed to track some, track them down, and I have them on my hard drive. Okay, <laughs> for, okay. For personal keepings, but it's Thomas Hayden Church is very funny in it, and Deborah Messing, who I do not always care for, I think is also very funny in it. Yeah, as well as uh, Greg German. Who oh some yeah, people, I like him from Ally McBeal. He went on to do um, Ally McBeal. And he's the uh, he's the heavy in Talladega Nights, which is a, a fun role for him, opposite Molly Shannon. Yes, he's Will Ferrell's <laughs> ineffectual boss. Yes, yes. So uh, Charlie Coppin uh, produced his first ever screenplay in 1999. That, of course, was being John Malkovich, and that got him an Oscar nomination. And it was kind of one of those things that just made the industry stand up and pay attention. And now he was suddenly like the hot ticket guy. Uh, Human Nature came out as well. I think it was an older screenplay of his that they kind of shopped around. Uh, I got that feeling watching it. That's what it kind of feels like. It's like, you know, when someone breaks really big and it's just like, all right, what else you got while you're working on the next thing? And then it's like, maybe not a banger, but, uh, but the next thing he did make was a banger. That was eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. That is going to be a later episode of this show. Um, and a really great movie. So Kaufman stepped behind the camera for the first time in 2008 with the movie Synecdoche, New York, which, again, Roger Ebert called the best film of the year and the best film of the decade. Uh, and perhaps the most Charlie Kaufman movie ever made. And I have not seen this yet. I have not seen his three movies as a director, uh, which I feel bad about, because his next one was Anomalisa, which is a, uh, it, it's uh, a marionette movie. And then the current one that just came out on Netflix this year is I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which I hear is a really fun, really bleak movie. I haven't seen it yet, but I really want to. I, it's already been getting, for whatever form the Oscars are going to take this year, this is one of the movies that's been kind of getting that Oscar-y buzz so far, at least for screenplay. So maybe would, he'll finally get his Oscar. It's insane to me that he doesn't have an Oscar yet. I, I thought for sure Adaptation was a lock for best screenplay that year, but somehow they did not give it to Charlie and Donald Kaufman. Do you know who they gave it to? It I can't the, remember. It was the pianist. Really? Like, I don't uh. th- like. I look back on that movie. I'm like, I don't think about the screenplay. You know, you you remember. Yeah, there's there's scenes you remember. Adrian Brody's performance, absolutely. Yeah, but I don't remember the screenplay for that. While adaptation was kind of like this epical, like, industry-shattering, like, original screenplay that, like, can't really be done again, you know? Uh, I think they fucked up on that one, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, like, wouldn't be the first time or the last time the Oscars got it wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. You hold your tongue. Green Book is the greatest movie of the last decade. Oh, my God. I can't <laughs> begin edition, to I... tell you how fucking angry I was when Green Book won. Especially uh, because, like, that was a year where there were, like, two, only two options I would have considered unacceptable for a Best Picture win, and they picked one of them. No, no. <laughs> full full disclosure, I still have not seen Green Book. Uh, I can't quite bring myself to watch it, but... Don't, uh, don't bother. There's there's no good reason to, other than, like, some good performances, but those actors are good in other things, too, so you can watch yeah, those things. Absolutely, absolutely. 
All right, so a little bit about the development of adaptation. So uh, what you're seeing on the screen here is actually pretty close to Kaufman's actual process uh, for uh, to a point, of course. Uh, he was hired uh, to write an adaptation of The Orchid Thief. This was uh, an article that Susan Orlean wrote. It was published in The New Yorker in 1994, and she expanded it uh, into a book length uh, in 1998. It became a surprise bestseller. Uh, Fox Searchlight bought the rights to it. At one point, Jonathan Demme was going to direct it, which is why he's still listed as an executive producer in this movie. Uh, but eventually, it just kind of got bounced around until after Being John Malkovich came out, uh, they approached Charlie Kaufman to adapt this story. It would have been his first time trying to write something that wasn't completely original. And he was struggling with it. He he felt, you know, as he says in the movie, he feels like the book didn't really have a structure that he could hang anything on. And he flatly refused to do the Hollywood thing that the uh, Tilda Swinton producer in the beginning was suggesting, that she should fall in love with the Orchid Thief or it should be some kind of heist movie or something like that. And he just didn't want to do any of that. And so he hit a wall and he was plagued with writer's block and he was just absolutely stuck. And so to kind of get himself unstuck, he started just writing about his process of writing the story. And then that became the script. And he didn't tell anybody about this. He didn't tell what any except for Spike Jones, who, of course, was 100 percent behind him. <laughs> and the day that he went to go turn in this script, I read an interview with Kaufman where he said he was convinced that that was the end of his career because he is turning in something that is so off the wall, so bonkers, so the opposite of what the studio would have wanted. And he was amazed to find that they loved it. Uh, the studio immediately fast-tracked the movie. They're just like, this is this is brilliant. Like, this is awards bait. This is something that we can get out there. Like, And, and they, they fast-tracked it. Which is uh, mind-boggling that a major studio had that reaction to the script. I know. God, it still kills me. Like, sometimes it's just like... I, I'm not one of those that just like laments superhero movies. I love a superhero movie. I love an MCU movie. Like I don't I don't necessarily lament that, but I do look at movies that were made like 20, 25 years ago, things that kind of made it to multiple like like big screen and you know, not just around awards time, but they made like big screen circulation. And it's just like, what, where are these movies? Where are these movies that are just kind of like for adults, you know? Like Oh, they've all they're all made for streaming services now, Steve. That's true. That's we true. don't well, get to enjoy is. good stories in the theater anymore. We have to watch them at home. Oh, damn it. I, don't I like can't at home. tell you how much I had been looking forward before COVID hit to seeing Happiest Season this year in a theater. Yeah. I thought, finally, a gay holiday rom-com for me. Yeah. And I, and I had to settle for seeing it at home. And that was a huge bummer. Of course, that's the worst thing to happen to anyone all year. <laughs> it is. It's the only bad thing that anyone's experienced. I mean, at least the balm you get with Happiest Season is that uh, it was like, I think it was like Hulu's most watched movie or something. Like it, 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 it actually created like a noticeable increase in Hulu subscriptions for that movie. So that's it is really a gratifying to hear. And I think it's going to lead to more work for Cleo Duvall as a director, which is great. Uh, I would hope so. so. And you can never get enough Mackenzie Davis either. No, no. I'm still mad that people do not respect uh, Terminator Dark Fate for the wonderful film it is. That movie made uh, me so happy. <laughs> that movie slams. And I think nobody really acknowledged that when it came out. But that's a that's a whole different discussion. I'm yeah, we're going, maybe getting too far off topic. <laughs> wait, hang on. Let me get my uh, let me get my tape recorder. OK, wait, we, we open with me saying welcome to Roger's List. Uh, this is a podcast where I'm talking about Roger Ebert. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. That's stupid. No, God, that's so self-indulgent. Jesus, I'm being repetitive now. No, anyway. 
Anyway, uh, Susan Orlean, uh, I was really curious about how she reacted to this. Like, I was thinking, like, <laughs> if I were an author and my book was about to be adapted into a major motion picture, how would I feel if this is what came back? And I think her first reaction is kind of what you would expect. She was horrified. And she said flatly, no way in hell, no, I'm not going to attach my name to this at all. And she said, like, to the studio's credit, to Coffin's credit, to everybody's credit, nobody tried to force her. But they did just say, like, we are all on board with this. Like, we, we, we're we asking you to trust us with this. And uh, we, we think you'll be happy with it if you just kind of trust us and get on board. And so she, she eventually did. Uh, when she saw the movie, she was impressed with it on a technical level. But she was still kind of mortified with the turn that her character took, you know, <laughs> becoming a... Uh, obsessive drug addicted uh, murderer down in the Florida swamps. Like, and then I th she, she said in interviews that she felt better after seeing how Charlie Kaufman presented himself, uh, you know, <laughs> and saying like, okay, well, you know, he, he, she's, he's being a little rough on me, but he's being way rougher on himself. <laughs> At least uh, I got to be played by Meryl Streep. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And she did come around and now like you interview, I've read interviews with her, like, from one or two years ago and she thinks the movie's brilliant and she was praising it for actually like getting for, for all the other stuff that's going on. She says they got the themes of the book, right? It's about obsession. It's about like, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it, uh, it is, it is shocking. You know, you always remember this movie as mostly being about Nicholas Cage as Charlie Ka and Donald Kaufman. Yeah. And then when you go back and revisit it and you're like, Oh no, like there's a fair amount of the actual text of the Orchid Thief in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, no there is. Like we're we're getting at least the gist of the story or at least the sense of, you know, they talk about how little structure the actual story had. Like I think he found a way to work around that. Like we're getting the meat of the story and then we get the Hollywood version of the story that they all wanted at the beginning, but we're that also still that that turn in the third act where suddenly oh. it becomes the movie that Donald is writing still blows me away. Astonishing turn. Oh, my God. So, uh, yeah, this went on to get four Oscar nominations, uh, including uh, nods for Best Screenplay and all three leads. Chris Cooper won Best Supporting Actor. That is the only award this movie got, and it's still uh, uh, astonishing. Cage was Had robbed. Cage was robbed. Cage was absolutely robbed. I, and I said when this came out, and I maintain to this day, it's his finest work as an actor, this movie. Oh, a thousand percent. So I was reading about it. So Nicolas Cage, we all know him. We all love him. He's he's America's favorite weirdo. He uh, generally, when he's approaching a movie, he's, he's a little hard to direct because he's always going to kind of show up and do his own thing. He's got his instincts. He follows them. He lets them take him to whatever weird direction they go. And he doesn't compromise on that very much as a he prime example. He has choices and he is committed to them. <laughs> yes, a, a prime example. So sometimes this can work to his detriment. He was cast as the villain in the Seth Rogen movie, The Green Hornet. However, he refused to play, he, he insisted on only playing the part with a dreadlock wig and a Jamaican accent. Uh, <laughs> now, Michelle Gondry, the director, Seth Rogen, the star, writer, producer, Neither of them were on board with this decision and they tried to talk him out of it. And so he quit the movie and they replaced him with Christoph Waltz, which may have been a better choice in the end. But like, that's just kind of a sign that like Cage, uh, he, he sticks with his instincts very well. But for this movie, he 
put his instincts aside and he decided, I'm just going to do everything that Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman tell me to do and nothing more. And so what you have here is a Cage performance that's, it's still weird. It's still Cage. It's still identifiably a Nicolas Cage performance, but it does feel subdued. It feels like he's he's on uh, a more human plane than he generally is acting. And he doesn't make any of these big distracting choices. Uh and it really works. You know, it's amazing to see a reined in cage, a caged in cage. Well, and in addition to that, uh, Spike Jones feels very subdued in this movie compared to what we had seen previously with being John Malkovich, where the visuals were very over the top and very stylized. And in this movie, he is wise enough to know that the script is doing all of that already. And so he can he can dial it down a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, this movie also is subtly like a very visually striking movie because like it's very accomplished. The the uh, split screen work with uh, Cage playing two characters is pretty seamless. Uh, Well, the the key there is what Spike Jones knows to do is you don't shoot it like you're showing off an effect shot. You shoot it like you would if there were two actors there. Exactly. Yeah. And they play it very naturally. And even some of the physical details, like uh, Chris Cooper's missing teeth. Uh, I did not realize Nicolas Cage was wearing a suit. Like, I thought he'd actually put on weight for that. Turns out that was a suit that they filled with, it was like a rubber latex suit. They filled it with lentil beans to kind of get the texture right. And because Nicolas Cage was sweating so much in that suit, the lentils started sprouting out of the skin. Which I keep thinking, man, that would be an incredible visual for this movie. (laughs) That... That's so messed up because there's a number of times where Nick Cage has his shirt off in this movie. And I thought for sure that he had just physically transformed his body for this. I was certain of that. I was absolutely certain. I'm like, wow. So I, it was only until like I was looking up, oh, wow, how much weight did he put on for this role? He didn't put on any weight for this role. That's all prosthetics. And That's I incredible. Don't, I don't know how they were able to get rid of Chris Cooper's three teeth like that without... Yeah, normally in movies you see that if they're wearing like the prosthetic like teeth or anything, their 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 tongue is hitting it, you know, so like yeah. their speech or it sounds like they've got something in their mouth, and it doesn't here. Like, and I don't know how they pulled that off, but it's really impressive and it's pretty seamless. And that's always the best kind of you know effects is the the ones that are most invisible. Yeah, and you're just not thinking about it, you know. It's um, like I always the one I always go back to is uh, in Muppet Christmas Carol. At one point, Kermit blows out a candle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it took me forever to suddenly realize, oh, that shouldn't be possible. It, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had the same reaction watching Kermit ride a bike in the Muppet movie. It took me a long time to actually figure out how they did it, and like it's it's obvious now that I think about it. But like, yeah, it took me a long time to figure that out. All right, another digression because I have yeah. to tell this story. Oh my god, please. Uh, Back in the day when I used to work at a video store, I should probably explain, a video store, for, <laughs> for some listeners, uh, was a, a type of building uh, where people would come to rent videotapes. You could only get there by walking uphill right. both ways. Yeah. And a, a videotape was this big chunk of black plastic that made all your favorite <laughs> movies look like garbage. Um, but anyway, uh, on the monitors one day, I was playing uh, the Muppet movie, and this little kid... Uh, looked to be about maybe six or seven, sees Kermit riding the bicycle, and he goes, how'd they do that? And I look down at him and go, oh, don't you know? He did it himself. And the kid just got this wide-eyed smile on his face. It was awesome. That's amazing. I love that. Oh, my God. Oh, the Muppets are magical. Um, 
So a couple other things. Uh, Meryl Streep still to this day considers this the best screenplay she's ever read. And you got to know she's read some good ones. So that's uh, that is quite the compliment from Meryl Streep. Um, Better so than the, Mamma Mia 2. Uh, here we go again. Jeez. <laughs> oh, um, so I this movie, I think from the get go, it captures anxiety in a way that uh, I found very uncomfortable. Like it's this. And I think there's an episode of Bojack Horseman where they've both got that kind of running monologue of like, of like you suck. Oh my God. I can't believe you're doing it. This is what anxiety feels like in my head. And this is why it's like, it's, it's, yes. it's agonizing. Stupid piece of shit was the title of that Bojack episode. And I've never felt more seen than when I watched that one. Oh my God. Same. And it's just like, uh, this this is what it's like if people want to know like what it's like and why you know why it takes its toll sometimes is because like it's just running through your head constantly mm-hmm. you know when we when we first meet charlie he is at a uh, meeting with a producer he is sweating more than any human being has ever sweat since albert brooks tried to run the news and broadcast news <laughs> <laughs> and he's just a mess and uh we have Tilda Swinton playing her most subdued character ever, maybe? Like, <laughs> well, it's, only... it's rare for her to be playing like a human being. <laughs> yeah, it's very rare for that. Yeah, and she's just like a person, like a normal milk toast person. And so, you know, and basically uh, things are just playing out the way it did in real life. Uh, she asked him to adapt this book, which he liked and he wants to do. Uh, and he's excited to get started on it. But Charlie is, uh, he's riddled with insecurities. He's hes obsessed with his weight. He's constantly degrading himself and saying, I'm fat, I'm losing my hair, I'm doing all this, I'm doing all that. Uh, and then he's got this twin brother named Donald, also played by Nicolas Cage. And Donald is a fabrication. There is no Donald Kaufman in real life. Uh, and I'm, this is such a wild choice to make this character like such a prominent figure to the degree that he Donald Kaufman is now the first fictional person to ever be nominated for an Oscar because that is so wild to me. (laughs) It's insane. He gets an actual screenwriter credit in this movie, but he does not exist, but they, the the Academy very gamely went with it. Like I'll give them, I'm wondering if that might've cost them the award though. I don't know. Maybe there's sadly, I have a feeling it probably did. Because, yeah, there has to be some kind of weird, like, union stuff for that or, or something. I don't know. But I, I love that they did it. Uh, I mean, and we're starting to see his vision for this story, and it's weird. We get this – we're starting with the Big Bang. We're starting with, like, the beginning of the universe and, like, going throughout history and time and culminating in the birth of Charlie Kaufman. Like, that's how his anxiety is built up to a point where he feels like all of human's history has culminated in him writing this screenplay, and he's going to fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's where he's at in the beginning of the movie. That's the level of tension that he is operating on. And so he just he he locks and he locks himself in too from the very beginning. He says, I'm not gonna write a Hollywood movie. It will not be this heist picture, it will not be this love story. You know, and so that once he takes that off the table, he doesn't have anything to play with. Like he doesn't well, he, know how to go forward. He's a victim of his own hubris in taking the job in the first place. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and he he's got you know I, I often say like with with my particular brand of depression and anxiety it's it's I get a lot of my life done in these little bursts of productivity that I get you know there's there's lots of kind of like oh laying around you know like this week is a good example this is my fifth podcast this week and I ran a half marathon two days ago the week before that I couldn't get out of bed 
So I, I get these little spikes, you know, and uh, that's kind of when you're productive. And I think that's what's happening here, too. It's like, all right, all right, I've, I've got this little bit of mojo. Uh, my, my first screenplay went well. I'm feeling good about my career. I'm going to go for it and do something big and bold. And then immediately after taking on that challenge, he's just like, oh, fuck, what have I done? <laughs> like, this is going to ruin everything for me. Um, so we kind of are starting to cut back and forth between the screenplay that he's envisioning and his process of writing it. So in his head, Susan Orlean is uh, Meryl Streep and John LaRoche, this orchid hunter, is Chris Cooper. He lives down in Florida and he is uh, he, he's literally an orchid hunter. He knows how to find and cultivate these extremely rare and extremely valuable orchids that he sells in the black market. And he uses all kinds of uh, uh, legal loopholes by hiring some Seminole Indians uh, in a very funny scene where he's... I, I really like he's explaining his whole process to the sheriff and he's like, right, guys, these are for your chicky huts, right? And the three Seminole guys are just like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, chicky huts. That's right. That's what we use them for. <laughs> like, really funny stuff there. Um, there was a very funny role by uh, an actor named Jay Tavare uh, when he he's like feeling uh, Meryl Streep's hair and like saying, I see your sadness and everything. Oh, yes. Uh, I thought he was very funny in that one scene. Um, so, yeah, it, it's... We, we I believe the of, uh, yeah. the officer who stops uh, uh, LaRoche and the Seminoles is uh, Jim Beaver. Oh, that's who that is. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I thought he looked familiar, and I couldn't quite put a finger on it. This movie, like, like every even the bit parts are filled with people who would go on to do big stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Ron Livingston with his very gross cameo. Oh, see oh, her? I, I fucked her in the ass. <laughs> I would fuck her in the ass. Yeah, <laughs> just like... That- that character was disgusting. <laughs> and the way that he's just like immediately backtracks and says, oh, no, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Like, it's like he's it feels like he's trying on the Hollywood douchebag thing and it's not quite fitting him, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which is just a fun choice for him to be making. Um, so, yeah, so we're starting to kind of conflate the two stories. There's there's a uh, uh, streep going down to meet this kind of mercurial, funny uh John LaRoche. And then we're getting a little bit about his backstory. He's got a very tragic history where his family died in a car accident. And and he's a guy who kind of bounces from obsession to obsession. You know, he starts with, uh, uh, what was it? It was Ice Age fossils, and then it was turtles, and then it was fossils, and then it was fish, and now it's orchids. Yeah, and it's... I feel like we've all at some point known somebody like this who can just pick up one day and decide, like, oh, my life is this now, yeah. and never look back. I've known yeah. one or two people like that, and I'm often amazed by them. I used to be kind of like that. Like, I would be super all in to something for, like, six or seven months, and then I would just abruptly cool on it and move on to something else. That's leveled out a bit as I've gotten older, but, uh, excuse me. So, uh, I, I like that we open, uh, we, we're flashing back a lot to the production of being John Malkovich, including bringing back uh, Malkovich and John Cusack and Catherine Keener, all in small roles, and none of them uh, being very flattering portrayals of themselves. Like we see John Cusack once he walks in, he looks at Charlie Kaufman who smiles and waves at him and he just sneers at him and walks away. (laughs) And it's Malkovich is being, you know, trying to direct, you know, above Spike Jones in his little cameo, (laughs) which I almost wonder if that was just like a shot from the day. Like, I feel like that's something Malkovich would do. It so feels like that that is real footage. It feels like it. I mean, I don't know. He's he's kind of being an asshole about it, but he's also like, 
I don't know. I, I I feel like his concern was coming from people wearing rubber masks of him, you know, like <laughs> it, at least in this. I don't know. I, we, we could debate that. I'm not sure. But it, it was an interesting choice to include that in there. Well, it's just another great bit of blurring the lines that this yeah. movie is constantly doing. Yeah. And I mean, so we, we get to be we have to backtrack a little bit to Donald. Donald is like, OK, so so they're identical twins. But Donald is just like a little bit thinner. His hair is just a little bit thicker. Like he's got things just a little bit better than Charlie, not to a noticeable degree, but all the things that Charlie hates about himself are just like slightly less noticeable on Donald. It's like Homer Simpson and his half brother Herb. Exactly. Exactly (laughs) that. Exactly that. And, you know, Donald's uh, he's a simpler guy. He's very earnest. He's very straightforward. Whereas Charlie is, uh, cynical and brilliant and tortured and kind of mean he's actually very mean to his brother this entire movie i was really struck by that on this watch is like man charlie is not nice to donald and donald he may be simple but donald's not a jerk no no he's not a jerk he's not a bad person he's just uh charlie resents him so much because you get this kind of recurring narrative that like Oh, Charlie's inept with women. Uh, he can't get anyone to talk to him or notice him or anything like that. And he's kind of internalized it as like, oh, okay, it's 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 because my hair's going. It's because blah 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 blah. And then here's a guy who looks pretty much exactly like him, and he's dating Maggie Gyllenhaal, and they're they're all giggles and smiles, and people like him, and they like hanging around with him. So this one excuse that he's built for himself that like, oh, people don't like me because of the way I look. Women don't like me because of the way I look. It doesn't play when Donald's around, like he can't keep up that illusion and he has to acknowledge that maybe it's just something about my personality that people don't like. And, and it really speaks to how good cage is in this movie that you're never in doubt about whether you're looking at Charlie or Donald at any given moment, just because no. how he's playing them. He's got this puppy doggish way of walking into a room when he's Donald. That's like really it's appealing and goofy and he's just kind of, you know, wandering through the world. We meet him like laying on the floor because his back hurts, you know, and just like just having a dialogue from the floor, perfectly comfortable. And so Donald wants to be a screenwriter too. And he starts getting to work on this really hacky thriller that he eventually calls the three. Uh, Mom called it psychologically taught, (laughs) which might be my favorite line in the whole movie. (laughs) I love, I love thinking that like a mom would be giving like a, like a Gene Shalit review to their son's screenplay. (laughs) It's so funny. Uh, But while like Charlie's kind of toiling away on this thing that he wants to be his masterpiece, Donald is writing this thriller script and he's having a ball. He is enjoying the process of writing. He's giggling. He's getting excited at these revelations. And Charlie is just furious. You know, he just hates himself. It it definitely feels like, you know, the enthusiasm of someone who is new to this thing and just excited about every aspect of it. And clear and yeah, Charlie has so much resentment because he doesn't have that feeling anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So eventually in an act of desperation, Charlie starts writing himself into the script. He starts writing and and the movie starts doubling back. He'll pick up a tape recorder and he'll start uh, narrating things that we've seen. And then he'll start narrating. And then we'll see him typing the things that we've seen. And then later we'll see him typing the things that we saw him typing, the things that we saw him see. And it's all just starts getting very cyclical and wild. And it feels it feels less like a like an intellectual flex and more like 
spiraling, but like yes. it's a very controlled spiral, but it's also read very clearly that this is not the way he wants this to go. This is the way he's allowing things to go because he's he's scared he's so and frustrated. It's, it's the only thing he can do. Right. In this moment of desperation, he finally agrees to take his brother's advice and go to this Robert McKee seminar. So Robert McKee, for those who don't know, he's a famous like script doctor who uh, made a lot of money in the 90s and early 2000s with his book Story. And he would go around giving seminars on how to write uh, uh, screenplays and things like that. He had some kind of hard and fast rules that a lot of people considered hacky. He's real big on pointing to Casablanca as like a model of structure, which yeah. is wild because Casablanca was one of those movies that seemed like it was going to be a disaster. They were constantly going through new scripts, new pages every day. They started filming without an ending. So it's just proof that like there's, there's no right way to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This this idea that uh, uh, Casablanca is just this perfect artifact like from the written word just was not the case. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think that McKee has value in terms of like he is good at laying out principles of structure and like why these these rules are here and why they work. But it's also a good example of like, but once you understand them, now you can break them. And he doesn't seem to be interested in that part. And that's the thing. Like Donald starts following these rules very dogmatically. He prints out he even has a, a Robert McKee's like top or Ten Commandments, which is a real thing. And he just staples it above his uh, his brother's like wall. You know, it's he's he's got kind of a cultish. Uh, <laughs> Uh, adherence to everything he says. He definitely is speaking with the enthusiasm of somebody who like just got tested for engrams. Yeah, <laughs> yes, he's very much he he is on board. Uh, and so, in kind of an act of desperation, uh, uh, Charlie goes to a Robert McKee seminar. And like I said, for most of the early part, we're getting this inner dialogue of him, his his self loathing. And at this point, like. When we've been hearing the inner dialogue up to this point, it's been kind of like a low Nicholas Cagey whisper speak. And when we're in this seminar, he's like screaming it practically. Like it's so loud and insistent that we can't hear anything McKee is saying until he says, and God and help God you help if you, you use voiceover. If you use voiceover, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when the voiceover stops. And I love it. Uh, Brian Nobody. Cox has so many great lines in this movie. To this day, I like to quote, people find love, people lose love. <laughs> People, nobody can drop an f bomb like Robert Mc or like like uh, Brian Cox. Uh, it's been a delight watching him in succession because of all the different ways they get to say, get him to say fuck off. Like uh, it's an absolute joy. Um, First thing I remember seeing that guy in was as Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter. I've and, still never seen that. Yeah. Oh, you know it's all right. It's yeah. it's very eighties Michael Mann. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah, I have no um, problem with that. And then I saw, I remember him in like in the late nineties. He did this uh, TV miniseries about Nuremberg. He played um, <gasps> yeah. Himmler, I think. With uh, Alec Baldwin no. was in that too, right? No, he played or... Goering. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I I shamefully I think my first exposure to him was X Two X Men United, which I don't know. That's not shameful. He's quite good in that movie. Um, yeah, but he's uh, Brian Cox is ingenious. We're I'm going to go into a lot of detail on him when we talk about the movie 25th Hour later on this show because that's his crowning moment. I think uh, really beautiful, but he's great in this part. He's playing with Robert McKee. They've got one of my uh, favorite exchanges is when Kaufman goes to speak to him after the seminar. He says, "I'm the guy you yelled at this morning," and he says, "I need more." Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great response to that, but like. 
they go to a bar and they have this conversation, you know, and they, they, they find value in each other. Like, I think, I think, uh, McKee seems impressed by what he's trying to do. And Kaufman is impressed by his insights and by his, his structural rules and things like that. But the fun part is that this is the moment where things kind of go off the rails. The moment he says the last act makes the film, this is where the movie starts doing all the things that McKee told you not to do. Well, a- yeah, it's and it's literally the moment Charlie invites Donald to work on the script is literally when everything changes. And you got to love it's the the number one like uh, a commandment on McKee's list was thou shalt respect thy audience. And in an amazing way, that's what adaptation is doing from here on out. We need to understand that this last 35, 40 minutes of the movie that takes a very dramatic and unexpected turn is not what's actually happening, and it's not Charlie writing it. We have to understand that he has let Donald take over the screenwriting process at this point, which is why we're getting these wild turns. We're getting this criminal subplot. We're getting alligator attacks. We're getting all kinds of crazy shit. And and the best part is also the dialogue becomes much worse. It becomes so earnest and expository. Like everybody's just kind of. He's got that dumb monologue about, uh, uh, you are what you love, not what loves you. I decided that a long time ago. And it, like it on, you know, on first glance, it all sounds nice. But then when you start picking it apart, it, none of it means anything. Yeah. It's like, what does that mean? And then there's a story about like the girls talking bad about it. And like, it, it is all very like screenwriting 101 kind of stuff. It's all very forced to development. But like at the same time, it's not, it's, it's not bad in an obvious way. You know, it's not like they're they're not camping it up. They're not. No, they're no, not, it's a it's a very sharp-eared satire of bad writing. Right, and you you, for most audiences, if you were watching a movie that just was kind of scripted like this, you'd probably think, yeah, this is a psychologically taught thriller. You know, this is <laughs> this this is fine. Like it's it's not going to win any awards, but this is a fine, entertaining movie. Like they're they're not writing a bad movie of the Orchid Thief. They're writing just a lesser movie than what Kaufman wanted to write. But they kind of work themselves all into this big, messy narrative where now the screenwriters are caught up with Susan Orlean and Chris Cooper, and they are all addicted to this drug that they manufactured from the ghost orchid. And early in the movie, Orlean says the one thing she wants more than anything is to be able to feel something so passionately, is to be able to want something so passionately. And it turns out that only happens because they do this drug that gives you that exact feeling. Isn't that convenient? So that's like supposed to be her whole arc is that she became addicted to this drug that gave her exactly what she wanted. And it's so wild. It's such a crazy choice. And like Meryl Streep is having so much fun with this part. Like she's a complete mess. She's shacked up with this like toothless hillbilly in the swamp in Florida. And they're just like wildly like uh, attracted to each other. And like, They're She's the one acting, who wants to murder them. They're suddenly acting very out of character. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. They're just not acting like anything. And then, of course, like they're being hunted through the woods. Donald gets shot and then he gets ejected from the car in a car accident and he's killed. Uh, a scene that's effective, even though it shouldn't be, even though we know what's going on. Well, uh, and more it shouldn't that, be this effective. 
more of that screenwriting 101 thing, they do a callback to the uh, Happy Together, the song. <laughs> they do a callback to Happy Together. They also do a callback to uh, uh, LaRoche's family being killed in a car accident. This is kind of the same thing that happens here. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, so he has become the monster that he always feared he was. Like, it, it's, it's all these n- very neat narrative threads. Of course, he is killed by a deus ex alligator just before he is able to <laughs> uh, shoot Nicolas Cage in the head. Like an alligator comes out of nowhere and bites him in half. And um, and then the movie ends there, pretty much ends there. He's going on, the movie ends with Kaufman on his way to hand over the screenplay and he wonders who's going to play him. He uh, hopes they're not too fat. He wonders if Gerard Depardieu can do it without the French accent which almost made me wonder if Depardieu was in consideration at some point, but I don't think he can lose that accent. No, <laughs> no. I, I, the, the one movie I saw where he even attempted was like, was that green card? Like, well, no, he was playing a French guy in green card. I, I don't think I've ever seen him bother trying to not yeah. do a French accent. Yeah. I don't think he should. I don't think he should. I think that would go poorly. Um, but yeah, so that, and that's kind of how it ends. We, we close out on like a very cool time-lapse shot of flowers growing in the middle of a busy freeway. And, while the yeah. turtle song plays. While the turtle song plays. Apparently, Weezer recorded a cover of Happy Together to play in this movie uh, that uh, Jones went, wound up using the original. But uh, just, just such a dizzying movie and so much fun to try and keep up with. But it, it's, it's, it's so like this kind of movie shouldn't be as accessible or as fun as adaptation is, but this movie's a blast. It's so funny. It's so smart. And it's just like a joy to try and keep up with it. Now, let me ask you, did you watch all the end credits? No, I didn't. Okay. So this is one of my favorite jokes in the whole movie. Um, uh, (laughs) There's a, after the credits are done, a quote comes up that says, we're all one thing, Lieutenant. That's what I've come to realize like cells in a body, except we can't see the body the way fish can't see the ocean. And so we envy each other, hurt each other, hate each other. How silly is that? A heart cell hating a lung cell. And then it says, Cassie, from the three. And then that fades out (laughs) and in fades, uh, dedicated to the loving memory of Donald Kaufman. (laughs) So they commit to the bit literally till the very end of the movie. (laughs) That is so good. Oh my God. I didn't even know about that. Yes. It was amazing. There's there's, there's (laughs) things to find. There's new layers to find every time you rewatch this movie. Uh, and that monologue from the three is so bad. (laughs) It's bad. It's really bad, but it also is absolutely something you would hear. Like, Oh man, it's, and at the same time, like for as much flexing is going, is, is going on here, this doesn't feel pretentious. This doesn't feel full of itself. This doesn't feel like, oh my God, look how smart I am. It, it manages to find like sincere notes to kind of convey a lot of this. I, I recently rewatched a movie that I, I very much like, uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which yes. is kind of a, a meta-narrative take on the Freddy Krueger mythos. And even that has a few, it's, it's very well done, but there are moments where you have Wes Craven writing lines about other characters talking about how brilliant Wes Craven's new script is, you know? And like, you don't have any of that here. Like I said, the one time you get that is literally while Charlie is having a masturbation fantasy of imagining a woman telling him how brilliant he is, you know, like he doesn't hold any illusions that people are going to think this is this great sweeping, brilliant thing. 
Uh, and that's kind of what makes it special. I don't know. Yeah, I just... The thing that always strikes me about this movie is, like, the first time you see it, it's such a mind fuck. Yeah. And But then every time you see it after that, it seems so obvious. Like, oh, yes, of course this is how you would uh, adapt this book. How could you do it any other way? It's so simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> like, yeah, it, never, why it never occurs to you that there could be any other way to do this. <laughs> No, and I mean, we Dan Harmon, for him kind of poking fun at uh, Charlie Kaufman in that community episode, like he's kind of the closest, the, the only person, the only other person besides Kaufman who can kind of come close to pulling this off anymore. Like this kind of meta narrative trickery is difficult and it, it takes a real in-depth understanding of structure and of, uh, of, of narrative like that. And Dan Harmon did produce uh, a Charlie Kaufman film. He was a producer on Anomalisa. Oh, I didn't even know that. Wow. Yes, the uh, stop motion animation was done by uh, Starburns Industries. That's oh, his, that's right. Yeah, that's he, his animation has, company. Uh, yeah, he has Moral Oral and uh, those other weird shows that he did, and uh, the Community uh, Christmas episode. I I can't recommend Anomalisa enough. It's incredible, and when you see it done as stop motion, once you understand what's going on, you'll see why. Like animated was the only way you could possibly tell this story. I need to get caught up on that. I'm gonna. I'll add that to the list. I need to. I need to finally watch that one. Um, I think we've kind of gotten to the end here. Uh, Jesse, thank you so so much for digging into this movie with me. This one's so much fun. Um, thank you for having you have, me, Steve. Oh God, anytime, anytime. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Any places uh, you'd, uh, you'd like to point people to? Uh, well, normally I'd say you can see me doing stand-up, but you can't see me doing stand-up anywhere right now because Bullshit. there's nowhere to do stand-up. Uh, but. Uh, you can uh, find my podcast. It's called What Is It This Time with Jesse and Paul, where we sort of do a rotating format of different kinds of shows. Uh, there's only a few episodes of that, but there are, you know, a huge archive of our previous show, What Do You Think, Paul, where we talk about entertainment news that happened almost 10 years ago. So if you want to hear us <laughs> riff on that, there's plenty of archives to dig through. Uh, you Love can find it, it all uh, under What Is It This Time with Jesse and Paul. That's amazing. That's amazing. I would also highly recommend Jesse as a uh, social media follow. He's been one of my favorites to follow. It's it's a nice mix of uh, of memes and righteous political anger, and uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, it, 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 it's always a delight to see it pop up in my feed. So, oh, thank you, Steve. You're too kind. Uh, well, thank you everyone for listening. We are Rogers List Pod on all the different social media outlets. Uh, be sure to tune in next week. We are going to be talking about the movie Easy Rider, the classic Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper motorcycle epic, uh, the progenitor of the American indie film scene. Easy Rider, a uh, movie I don't love, but maybe I'll get around to it. Let's see. Maybe I'll come around this time. I always say it's a movie that is more historically important than it is actually good. I would, I would probably agree with that, but you know, Jack Nicholson is a, is amazing in that movie, if nothing else. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to digging into that again. Uh, so thank you again so much for being here, uh, and uh, I will see you all next time for Rogers List. If I should call you up, invest a dime, and you say you belong to me, lose my mind. Imagine how the world could be so very fine, so happy together.
wonder how they tossed the dice it had to be.